0: Welcome to the Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sachs. Hey, just a, a, a quick word. Um, Thursday night, we have uh, another one of the Bulwark Plus exclusive live streams. Uh, we'll be talking about the, the news of the week. Uh, Bill Crystal. Who, who Who is on that? Uh, Bill Crystal's on that. I think Sarah Longwell's on that. So we'll be talking about a number of things, including apparently Bill Crystal's plans to annex Cuba, which uh, I have not yet had a chance to talk to him about. So we're, you know, we are now in the process of debating statehood for D.C. and maybe Puerto Rico. And Bill Crystal being such a forward thinker, <laughs> suggesting, hey, you know, maybe Cuba someday. I don't know. I, it was enough It was enough to trigger all of Twitter over the last 24 hours. Also, just a quick note, if you haven't signed up for uh, Bulwark Plus, uh, you have an opportunity to do that. Uh, have access to that live stream as well as uh, our s- full suite of podcasts, including this one, and our newsletters, uh, Morning Shots, The Triad, and, and Jim Swift's uh, Overtime. Uh, Just a note, I, my newsletter today is, 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 is public. It is, it is available and it is almost entirely devoted to something that my, my old friend Scott Walker is doing with the young America's foundation. And uh, he put a video out, uh, you know, talking about the, the, the future of conservatism and playing the long game. And I have a critique of that, uh, that video, Um, And, you know, perhaps unkindly suggesting that uh, Scott Walker turns out not to be Bill Buckley. He is no Bill Buckley. And uh, I just I, 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 I wrestled with whether I should be doing this, considering that I've been writing about Ron Johnson, talking about Ron Johnson. And of course, I go way back with Scott Walker as well. But uh, Scott Walker is in a position to determine the trajectory of conservative politics for a long time. He's the president of the Young America's Foundation. And our our, uh, our colleague Jim Swift wrote a really great piece back in 2019 asking whether or not Walker could use his position to, you know, save conservatism, whether he could he could whether he could. Uh, you know, move away from the bigots and the crazies who'd become to you know had come dominate conservatism Inc. You know, would he be able to restore some of the intellectual heft of a movement that had been launched by William F. Buckley Jr. And I got to say that the early uh, returns are not good. Uh, so he has this new video out, and I sort of break it down, and you can come for the analysis and stay for the screenshots when you have a video about the future of conservatism. Uh, And you feature uh, Alan West from Texas and Dinesh D'Souza and a former anchor from uh, OAN. Uh, It's it's an indication of, you know, how how this 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 fight is not going well. Let me just put it that way. It is not necessarily going well, especially when you think that you could have chosen any number of, you know, thinkers, uh, uh, office holders, governors, uh, scholars to put in this video The only good piece of news, I think, is the fact that Walker's video about the future of conservatism doesn't include any pictures of Donald Trump or memory of Donald Trump. It is kind of dropping Donald Trump down the memory hall. Interesting editorial choice. Uh, Mike Pence makes a small appearance in this video, but not Donald Trump. Now, normally I would find that to be somewhat encouraging, except for all the clickbaity own the libs types that are featured there, so uh, you can check that out in our Morning Shots newsletter. So today, um, our our guest is a guy who is. Uh, I don't know, but wait, Adam, before I introduce you, when when I say that is really lucky, that that is not to take away from your accomplishment, but no. sometimes it is really better to be lucky than good. Not to say that you're not good, but um, you have <laughs> really you have a new book out. That could hardly be more timely. So first of all, good morning, Adam. Good morning. Good morning. And you'll get now let me, me introduce you. So Adam, Adam, uh, Jenderson is the author of this, the new book, uh, kill switch, the rise of the modern Senate and the crippling of American democracy. And it's being touted as uh, a comprehensive case for ending the filibuster, which, um, Wow, uh, Adam, um, <laughs> you're, you're a Senate guy, former deputy chief of staff to, uh, to, to to Harry Reid. So this lands at a very interesting time. Before we get into that, though, and I mentioned this before we started the podcast, um, I've, I've never met you, but but uh, my I, I have an image of you, this sort of seared in my mind, and I wanted to get your impression of it. The the morning of January sixth. Um you were sitting down with John Heilman, this was run later, but John Heilman from the circus, and he was doing the the, the week, you know, obviously setting up the, the the circus, which people can watch on showtime. and you and he were sitting in a hotel room or an office, and you're watching the unfolding events of January 6th in real time. I, I'm guessing you remember that.
1: I do. I do. It's what was place. that like
0: for you? I'm mean, just because obviously you'd you'd signed up to sit down with John Heilman and you had the cameras rolling and you're watching this remarkable, stunning
1: series of events. What yeah. were you thinking? It was it was um, a, a very disturbing moment. Um, we were we were actually at a house in, in Georgetown where they were filming. So not far from from the Capitol, um, you know, really. A, at a location that I would sort of drive by on my way to work when I worked in the Senate. Um, I would take Rock Creek Park to work um, and pass by the, the exit to this location. Um, and it was just uh, incredibly disturbing. I mean, you know, I think, and interestingly, right before everything started, uh, taking turns for the worse, I think I said something like, oh, I think what we're about to see is going to be pretty boring. Mm -hmm. Um, because we were talking about the unfolding drama on the floor where we expected some senators and congressmen to raise objections to the counting of the election results. But then, you know, after a few hours of debate for that all to just peter out. Um, and then we started seeing the images on TV, getting texts and emails from, from friends, and, you know, where they were going into the Capitol was literally where I used to work um, on the, the west front of the Capitol. Um, our office, Senator Reid's office, now Senator Schumer's office, faces out on that front. Um, and I would spend many hours looking out those windows right at those steps that people were um, invading the Capitol through. So I, I was worried about my friends who still work there. Um, and I was just deeply disturbed at, at what was happening. And it was very weird to also be on TV in this moment. I really just wanted to get out of there um, and and be able to hear from people who were there that they were okay. Um, and uh, And just try to sort of take stock of what was happening to our democracy, but it, you know, being, being on set is not a great place to be able to do that, that kind of thing. So it was sort of a, an awkward moment, although, um, I thought, I thought John H- handled it very well that he and their crew were about to head down to the Capitol. And I think they were all sort of concerned, um, for what they were about to face. So it was, it was a pretty intense moment.
0: It, it is extraordinary. It, it's, it, it's not that long ago, and yet the efforts to do the revisionist history, drop it down the memory hole, um, are rather extraordinary. I mean, you you heard Ron Johnson saying, yeah, I never felt threatened that day because they weren't really around the Senate, which, of course, is factually not true. The Senate itself was very, very much under siege.
1: Well, that, that video that, that was going around that day of of the officer drawing um the crowd away from the Senate floor. Um, that my office was. You see, you know, he passes the doors to to where we used to work in in that video. Um, and you know, we used that is a free and open space. You know, once you pass through, you know, minimal security to get into the Capitol, you pass through a metal detector. Um, but once you're inside, it's a pretty open space. And so we would just stand out in those hallways, hanging out, talking to reporters, waiting to see who walked by. You know, trying to pick up the latest piece of of gossip or scuttlebutt. Um, And to see it invaded like that uh, was just incredibly jarring.
0: So let's talk about the book. Um, Obviously, it's timely because of the debate about the filibuster, but sort of it feels today like it's doubly timely. And I'm sure you feel the same way. The book opens with a scene from um, Harry Reid's office uh, where you are with parents of children who were killed in the 2012 Sandy Hook Massacre reacting to the fact that uh, this bipartisan bill to uh, have uh, universal background checks on gun buyers had been killed by a filibuster. I mean, this is this, this is how you open the book. And, of course, we're having this conversation, you know, the day after uh, a couple of days after another mass shooting, the week after another mass shooting in this country. And people are wondering, well, will, will you know Congress act this time? And that scene really gripped me because for me. And I talked about this with David French yesterday on the podcast. For me, that was the moment that if that didn't change America, if that didn't break the logjam in Congress, literally nothing would. So let, let's talk about that and yeah. that moment where you really saw the, the the power of the filibuster to stop a piece of legislation that would have had overwhelming support in any other context, wouldn't
1: it? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, it had support of eighty-eight percent of the American people at the time, and fifty-five. A group of fifty-five bipartisan um, group of senators, uh, you know, and 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 the scene that I described was sort of an informal meeting, um, an impromptu meeting right after the vote failed. Um, this was the decisive vote that was not on the bill itself, but on the cloture motion to mm-hmm. end the period of debate, which is where the filibuster is waged and and throws up this sixty vote hurdle. <clears throat> and um, one of the parents who had come down from Newtown, Connecticut, was a man named Neil Heslin. Uh, he was a Republican, still is, I believe, um, and he had lost his only son, Jesse, in the shooting. And um, Neil couldn't understand what, what they had done wrong, um, how their effort had not been enough. And we didn't have any good answers for him. Um, they had done everything right. They had made a rational case based in facts and a reasonable policy proposal Um, They had met with senators themselves and and made their case. Um, They had done press conferences, despite the emotional trauma that they were going through. Um, And it just wasn't enough. And Neil's a big guy, um, you know, and seeing him break down like that, um, and and just not being able to answer these sort of fundamental questions about why our system was so broken, um, was what started me to ask the questions that, that eventually led, led to this book. Um, because I think what's what's unique about that, that policy proposal and some of the things we're seeing today is that this wasn't a far-left policy. Um, we had gun rights groups in support of this policy, not the NRA, notably, but many other groups in support of it. Um, this is not confiscation. This is not even an assault weapons ban. This is just universal background checks. And so, you know, it just goes to show that what is being blocked by the filibuster and its modern manifestation in this relatively arbitrary 60 vote threshold is not far left policies. It is moderate center, middle of the road policies. Um, um, and that being able to to not explain why that couldn't pass, I think was just was impossible to do. And, and that's what led to, to the book.
0: Okay, so I'm going to disconfess, that I have really mixed feelings about the the filibuster. And I've written in the past in defense of the filibuster, I'm, I'm, and I'm not sure that I'm still there because I suppose I'm one of those people who believed that had this nostalgic view of the filibuster that I got from Mister Smith goes to Washington, you know, standing there, you know, the, the the brave the the brave filibuster holding the Senate floor for hours and hours and hours, and also just the concern that 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 if you abolish the filibuster, then the Senate ceases to be the the, the cooling teacup, uh, the saucer uh, that it was intended to be, that it would simply be a majoritarian rule and that you would, you know, jam through major legislation on bare majority. So, but this, th- you know, one of the things that I think you do in this book though, is explain how politics has changed and also the way the nature of the Senate has changed. So a lot of the assumptions that we made about the filibuster making it easier to, compromise is no longer true. Before we get into that, though, mm-hmm. so you know, I have the Mr. Smith Goes to Washington view, but over the last couple of days, there's been this debate about what is the real origin of the filibuster, and what
1: is its racial history? Yeah. Who invented the filibuster? Well, uh, you would get a million, if you paged historians on that, you would probably get a, a bunch of different answers. Um, the, the difficulty in pinning it down is that the um, they didn't call it a filibuster at the time, so you sort of have to decide how you're going to categorize certain performances of obstruction that were happening in the early 19th century. And different people would sort of point to different things as the very first filibuster. Um, obstruction was also very rare at the time, as I explain in the book. Um, the early ethic of the Senate was that you would, you know, give a speech and say your piece, and then you would sit down and let your colleagues speak, and then after everybody had had their say, the bill would come up for a vote to pass or fail on a simple majority. Um, I argue in the book that that. You can really trace the origins of the filibuster, though, to Senator John Calhoun of South Carolina, mm. um, and that is supported by by other historical accounts and, and analysis by political scientists and and historians. And, and the reason is that Calhoun sort of brought together the different elements into one complete package that we would sort of recognize as the filibuster today. And this is still the talking filibuster of the of the Mister Smith era, um, and that is you know not just perf- not just obstruction, not just uh, giving a long speech, but also doing it. With an eloquent defense of the idea of minority rights. Um, and uh, it was Calhoun who sort of for- first forged this connection. And of course, when he was doing this in defense of minority rights, the specific minority that he was defending was, was not a vulnerable population, but rather the slaveholding uh, plantation class of the South. Uh, and this is what led the American historian Richard Hofstadter to dub Calhoun the marks of the master class. Um, <laughs> You know, this was supposedly a tool of the underdog that he was applying in defense of the biggest overdog in in America at the time. Um, so it was Calhoun who forged this connection. Um, and he, one notable first instance was in eighteen forty one against a bank bill that uh, Henry Clay was trying to move on behalf of the Whig administration at the time. And what's notable about that. Is it the the newness with which uh, the the observers greeted this filibuster? There was sort of a shock at what he was doing. Um, uh, There's an account by Senator Thomas Hart Benton of Missouri, who was sort of a Calhoun ally in this fight, a first person account at the time, where you can feel his thrill at this new uh, uh, destructive force that was being unleashed. Um, and even then, they didn't have the word for it. They didn't call it a filibuster. That name didn't emerge until significantly later. Um, but the word itself connotes piracy. It's a it's an anglicization of a Dutch word uh, meaning freebooter, literally one who gets free booty. Um, and there was a lot of piracy going on at the time off the off the Gulf Coast. Um, but but Clay, you know, who we regard as a leading light of the Senate, obviously the great compromiser. Mitch McConnell likes to talk about how he sits at Henry Clay's desk. Clay's reaction to Calhoun's filibuster was to immediately try to get rid of it. Um, he did what we would sort of describe today clay did as attempting to go nuclear Um, he saw how damaging this could be um, and he was unable to to succeed Calhoun was able to outmaneuver clay and basically force him to choose between the sort of abstract goal of reform or his immediate priority this bank bill and this is something that happens a lot clay chose his immediate priority the bank bill But Clay was right, and the the advent of this new technique and the rise in obstruction led to a steady decline in the Senate over the second half of the the 19th century. But its origins really were – and the thing about this era is that it's a little murky because, you know, there were a lot of issues that weren't ostensibly about slavery – but where the subtext was clearly about slavery and about the balance of power between the North and the South. And so this filibuster was about the bank bill, but it was really about whose economic model was going to be superior. And in <laughs> carrying out his filibuster, Calhoun was, at, was advocating on behalf of, of the plantation class and, and trying to advance their power.
0: Okay, so let's fast forward here. There are a lot of uh, prominent Democrats who have been very, very reluctant to do away with uh, with the filibuster. Most prominent of all being Joe Biden, who has warned, look, um, yeah, you might abolish the filibuster and get things that you want, but um, it would work the other way when the other people, the, the other side is in charge. And y- you've lived through this. Uh, when you were in Harry Reid's office, uh, he did invoke this uh the, the nuclear option or what was known as the nuclear option. Obviously, there's something worse now. Uh, you know, changing Senate, Senate rules to exempt uh, most presidential nominations from the filibuster and you know, including the appeals court. And, um, you know, that was that was a significant move. And when Donald Trump came in, he took advantage of that as well and then took the additional step of removing the filibuster for Supreme Court nomination. So didn't that create the kind of tit for tat back and forth that supporters of the filibuster had had warned against. I mean, in, in retrospect was, you know, do you, do, you have, do you have mixed feelings about the decision to go nuclear on the appeals court judges when Republicans were able to then do the exact same thing for
1: Supreme Court nominees? I, I have no regrets at all. And, and, you know, this could be me rationalizing it, um, because I was played a, you know, a role in, in pushing us to do that. And and I was there with Senator Reid at the time. Um, so, you know, take, take with a grain of salt for, for sure. Um, but, but here's why I'm, I'm at peace with it. And in fact, my only regret is that we didn't didn't go nuclear earlier and on more things. <laughs> um, I, I don't see it as a tit for tat. I see it as a, we're on a trajectory here back towards a more functioning Senate um, that requires us to return to a healthier balance between minority rights and, and majority rule, which was what I think James Madison was trying to get at when he created the Senate. We could talk more about that. Um That balance, in my view, has been shifted dramatically in favor of minority rights to the extent that it creates gridlock and allows the minority to halt everything. And so um, what we were able to do by going nuclear at that time was confirm a wave of Obama nominees to lifetime appointments on the bench um, who would not have been confirmed otherwise. Obama at the time was on pace to have the fewest judicial nominees confirmed of any president since Reagan, and probably going back further, um, the data uh, we used only goes back to Reagan. Um, because we went nuclear and we were able to confirm a wave of nominees, he left office on par with his predecessors. So there are more Obama judges serving lifetime appointments today than there would have been if we hadn't gone nuclear and there would have been more vacancies for McConnell and Trump to fill. I happened, and this, you know, your listeners may disagree with me here, but I happen to believe that if we'd left the filibuster in place, not only will we not have confirmed all those Obama nominees, um... Mitch McConnell would have just gotten rid of it when we filibustered. Um, I think that there's there's an argument to be made that he won't get rid of it on legislation. Um, but I think it's almost certain that he would have gotten rid of it for judicial appointments. We know that is what he prizes as his greatest uh, feature of his legacy. So if we left it in place the first time Democrats filibustered a Trump nominee in 2017, I think McConnell would have just gotten rid of it. And I don't think he would have had a particularly hard time finding the votes. You could certainly argue that we made it easier for him. But even if it took him a couple of months, um, as the filibusters piled up, I think it's very hard to imagine McConnell and Trump just sitting around and letting Democrats filibuster their judicial nominees without eventually going nuclear. So I think the outcome would have been that McConnell got all his judges confirmed anyway, and we would have gotten less, fewer judges confirmed uh, during our time in power.
0: So when, when when Lamar Alexander retired, he, he he gave a speech where he he said, "Look, our country needs a Senate to work across party lines to force broad agreements on hard issues. Ending the filibuster will destroy the impetus for forcing the broad agreements I've been talking about." But you make a, a, a kind of a compelling case that the, those incentives to compromise that a lot of us have assumed were there because of the filibuster, those incentives are just no longer working. So can you talk about that, how how the Senate has changed, how American politics has changed so that that the that, that whole mechanism of the filibuster, which was supposed to push people to sit in a room together and come up with compromise and back and forth, just isn't functioning anymore?
1: That's right. I think today the incentives are much more powerful to obstruct. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for this. One is the general polarization and sort of ideological sorting of the two parties that's taken place. And the Senate was sort of a lagging uh, factor here. Um, Much, many other features of American politics fully polarized before the Senate did. As recently as 2008, you had a lot of senators coming from, Democratic senators from red states and um, Republican senators from blue states. But that's really been sorted um, to the extent that now, you know, senators align directly with the presidential lean of their states. Um, And, you know, that reflects the ideological um, homogeneity of the parties, where, you know, it sounds crazy to say, but as you well know, very in recent history, um, there were very conservative members of the Democratic Party and very liberal members of the Republican Party. So in an era of looser partisanship um, and looser party identification, um, you had more opportunity for compromise and you could reasonably expect a Republican and a Democrat to join together. Um, what you often had, though, was ideological um, you know connections there, where it was if you looked at who was supporting it, it was l- mostly liberals or mostly conservatives, um, but they just happened to be of different parties. Um, today, uh, the the polarization you know makes it harder to cross those those party lines. Um, the narrowness of majorities uh, counterintuitively also makes it harder to craft compromise. You might think that a more even balance of power in the Senate, like the 50-50 Senate we have now would mean that the parties would would work with each other. But in fact, it's the opposite. And this is something that's been studied by political scientists. There's a book called Insecure Majorities by Francis Lee that's incredibly enlightening on this. Um, when you're only one or two seats away from getting back into power as the minority, you have an incredibly strong incentive to block the majority and make them fail to deliver on all of their promises. You're seeing that right now where McConnell knows he's one seat away from taking back the Senate in 2022. Um, the way he wants to, hes it's a perfectly rational political calculation to say that the way to do that is to block Biden, make him fail to deliver, depress the Democratic base, uh, and then ride the historical trends that favor Republicans in the midterms anyway, um, to, to take back those seats. Um, there's also a policy argument you make in this, where leaders go to their members of their caucus, and they say... Listen, you know Susan Collins or whoever. I know you care about this issue deeply, but you could have much more impact on this policy issue that you care about if we were in the majority. You could be the chair of the committee instead of the ranking member. You could be the lead sponsor of the bill and write it yourself instead of, you know, just being a hanger-on. So all these factors make it incredibly uh, provide incredibly strong incentives for obstruction. And the last thing I would say is this: this threshold of sixty is just virtually impossible to achieve mm-hmm. uh, on. Con- Convent on, on you know controversial or, or contentious topics, um, if you lowered it to a majority, I actually think you would see more opportunity for bipartisanship because you can easily conceive of scenarios where President Biden could pick up a small number of Republicans, a Susan Collins or Murkowski, a, a Mitt Romney perhaps, um, and get to 52, 53, which would be a major bipartisan accomplishment. But it's almost impossible to imagine him getting 10 Republicans on most of the things he wants to do. So, you know, a resurgence of bipartisanship is going to require some baby steps here and some green shoots. And I think, you know, going back to a majority rule Senate and trying to pick up one or two Republicans here and there is, is probably a better way to do it than, than stifling any progress at all and, and making nothing pass so that Republicans can just ride that obstruction back into the majority.
0: So let's just talk about this in the context of what we just saw with the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package, because I think you know, before the election, there was a lot of talk about this would be bipartisan. I think there was an assumption that there would be a Republican support for something like that, as there had been in last last year. There was a group of Republicans that came in, sat down with the president and said, hey, we'll give you like a third of that or whatever. Um, the negotiations went nowhere, as, as everyone knows. And the bill that was eventually passed was pretty much exactly what the Biden administration and the Democrats want. It was not a compromised piece of legislation. So you know is, is is you know was there any chance that there was going to be a compromise that could have gotten to 60 votes i mean let's start start with that i mean obviously that's what joe biden wanted and they concluded very early on that there was no way to get to
1: sixty votes right. on a package they could support. Is that correct? Right. That's that's and that's the thing. I think there's no way to get to sixty. You know that that ten group, that group of ten Republicans. If you looked at those names, you know, you kind of had to look askance at a few of those um, on the idea that they would still be there at the end. People like uh, Governor Mike Ra- or Senator Mike Rounds. Um, you know, where you kind of it looked like they they sort of pulled some people off the street to get their number up to ten, um, and it was unlikely that those people would would actually be there through the course of the negotiation. Um, but the thing is, it's while it's really hard to imagine them getting to 60, it's very easy to imagine them getting to 52 or 53. Mm-hmm. And so if this negotiation had kicked off with the goal not of getting to 60, where Biden would have been required to make compromises he just wasn't willing to make, and I don't think he should have had to, um, if he'd only needed to pick up a few people, then I think you're looking at a much different kind of negotiation. Um, then you don't have to satisfy, you know, far-right senators, in addition to satisfying moderates, I think you would have had a very good chance at proposing policies that would have brought along um, mm-hmm. Susan Collins or Mitt Romney. So it's it's you know it's easy to imagine bills getting 52, 53. It's impossible to imagine bills getting 60 um, and still following through on the promises Biden made. So it's that arbitrary threshold that the filibuster enforces that I think really just sort of creates a barren landscape for, for potential for bipartisanship.
0: You, you probably saw what Ben Sasse said yesterday in the Senate, um, you know, in, in opposing the, the abolition of the filibuster, saying that that uh, you know if 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 any party could push through its legislation with the narrowest of majorities, then every election becomes a flight ninety three election. It becomes we get into a cycle of of even more extreme polarization, where Democrats get everything they want, they push through their entire wish list, and then you know if they lose in the midterms or they lose in the next uh, election, then then Republicans Republicans will push through every single piece of their legislation without compromising Mm -hmm. and so that the system becomes more extreme, more partisan, uh, and you create that kind of all or nothing cycle. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a, a little bit of a, a dramatic take from from Senator Sass. I mean, what one thing I would point out is that this is how every other modern democracy operates. Hmm. Um, you know, we're the anomaly in having a supermajority threshold for all legislation in our legislative chambers. Um, and you know, I'm not saying we should be like other countries, but if you look around the world, um, every other modern democracy has a majority rule legislature. And they're not perfect; they have their flaws, but you don't see that kind of, you know, whiplash effect that's being described. Um, and I think that there's, there's, you know, first of all, I think the idea that you know Democrats are going to come in and pass Medicare for all or something like that is 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 not based in reality you know, anything that we pass has to have the support of Joe Manchin and Bernie Sanders. So you're going to mm-hmm. have a compromised piece of legislation just by the, ver- the virtue of the need to get 50 votes. Um, you know, if Medicare for All came up today, I think it would get maybe 10 votes in the Senate. Um, so I don't think that this idea that it's going to be you know, far left legislation than far right legislation is held up. The other thing I would holds up to scrutiny. Um, the other thing I would point out is that this is just how the Senate used to operate. Um, So we don't even have to look to other countries to see an example of a Senate where you pass things on a majority vote. And and the trend used to be that uh, even in less polarized eras, issues were fought tooth and nail until they could secure a majority. And then once they were able to secure a majority, you often had a flood of other senators jump on board because they wanted to be a part of popular legislation. You look at Medicare, for example – And the fight on Medicare was to secure a majority in the Senate. It never faced a filibuster and never had to clear a supermajority threshold. At that time, the filibuster and its supermajority threshold was reserved exclusively um, for civil rights. There's a a memo from LBJ's top legislative aide to the president saying – that he was now confident Medicare was going to pass because he could count a majority in support of it. Once it secured that majority, a bunch more senators jumped on board because they knew it was going to be popular and, or maybe they wanted to influence the legislation at the last minute, and the vote total ran up to 70. But I think that is generally what happens is you know uh, policies that are relatively moderate pass, um, maybe after the dust settles a little bit, Republicans start to realize that they don't gain anything from being on the opposite side of this popular legislation. Um, you saw Senator Murkowski, you know, start to play with the idea of supporting, um, the American rescue plan, uh, even though it was much larger than she wanted, um, because you don't gain anything from block from voting against a popular piece of legislation if you can't block it. Um, so I, I would say to Senator Sass, I think that, that, it's, it's not going to be far left and far right. It's going to be relatively moderate pieces of legislation passing by the need to get to 50. Um, it's a hard thing to do. And uh, the, I would make the opposite case that the wheels of government actually turning again, of legislation actually passing and senators getting back in the habit of getting bills done is the thing that is going to increase um, the chances for bipartisanship and for cross-party cooperation
0: you could imagine that would be attractive to some of the people who are probably kind of disgusted by what's happened to the United States and okay, I have a really wonky question to ask you before I get into some of the more substantive like where we're at right here yeah. um, you know watching and 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 by the way this this may be a stupid question i, I I'm, I'm acknowledging sure, this. No stupid
1: that, this you
0: side. know everybody's talking about abolishing the filibuster or modifying the filibuster having carve- outs with the filibuster. And we just saw a $1.9 trillion uh, piece of legislation passed through reconciliation. And I think that this is something that we've become you know, somewhat more familiar with reconciliation, which allows on very rare circumstances. There's a limited number of times and there's a limited number of purposes you can use reconciliation. Correct. I mean, you. and and there's some things you can't do. Uh, the, The Senate parliamentarian said you couldn't raise the minimum wage through reconciliation because there are very, very specific rules. So I guess my question is, while we're talking about the filibuster, wouldn't you be able to deal with many of the issues that we've been talking about by modifying the reconciliation rules? broadening reconciliation, making reconciliation
1: more robust. I've never heard anyone even talk about this. You you could, except the thing is you, you'd have to do what's called the nuclear option, even just to change those rules. So well, we're all in nuclear options. Everything we're talking about is a nuclear option, right? That's right. I, it's, but it's, it's a funny <laughs> dynamic here because the, the tactic to change the rules is what is often the most controversial part of this. Mm-hmm the decision to make, you know, to, to vote by majority rule to, to alter Senate rules, that's the nuclear option. Um, and I think there's an element to this where senators are sort of, you know, if they're going to take that step, um, you know, you, you might as well go bigger cause you're going to get a lot of, you're going to get all the heat you would get for any kind of reform simply by going nuclear, Okay, but just from a political, you standpoint, might as well go, big, okay, you're if you're going to do big, that, big. you might as well do it. There's, there's, there's another, there's sort of a good government argument against it too, which is that reconciliation is, is a pretty closed process, um, you know, it's it's rolling everything into one big package, and then you run everything through the budget committee, mm-hmm. um, and you sort of, you know, jam it through. So we've had this trend in Congress towards bigger and bigger pieces of mega legislation. You see it in the appropriations process where we keep doing these, you know, giant omnibus appropriations at the last minute um, that are, you know, a Christmas tree for lobbyists and, and special interests. And I think that running things through the rec- reconciliation process would would create that kind of dynamic where you're putting together... Mm-hmm big legislative omnibuses that, that aren't great. So you know, going nuclear would, would be a big step, but then you could go back to regular order and just run things through the normal process and just bring bills to the floor, go through committees like, like they used to do. Um, so it's sort of ripping the Band-Aid off and then just going back to a, a more sane and, and rational process. Okay, that would, that would, that was a pretty good answer. Okay, let's talk about the politics where we're at right
0: now. Um, it is remarkable to watch how uh, this has moved. I'm sure it's more remarkable for you to watch how this has uh, moved to the top of the agenda. Uh, you can't turn on any of these shows without talking about the the filibuster. Uh, tremendous momentum. Joe Biden, who had I thought made it very very clear that he opposed this, has clearly weakened. Joe Manchin appears to be opening a crack, uh, the crack of the door just a little bit. Give me your sense of what the politics is right now, because I think the conventional wisdom, probably when you started writing this book, was there just were not enough Democratic votes to ever do this. There, were just, there was a group of moderates that were not going to support the abolishing the filibuster, but there's tremendous momentum, but it doesn't really count unless you get Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. So where are we at now?
1: Yeah, I there has been tremendous momentum far more than I I would have ever hoped. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, if you told me that, that, you know, by this time of the year, we would already have seen shifts from Biden and Manchin um, and uh, Senator Angus King is out with an op ed Mm -hmm. signaling that he's open to it, which is a big Um, deal. Yeah, that's a big deal. I I, I would not have thought we'd have come this far this fast, especially at, you know, a bare majority of of 50 votes. Um, But I think the reason is that, first of all, I think Republicans are are not playing their hand particularly well here. Um, I thought that there was going to be a more robust, um, you know, at least attempt at bipartisanship um, and – I think that between their handling, in many ways, of, of the Janu- events of January sixth, um, of, of rallying behind the president in the impeachment trial after that, um, and then you know filibuster, trying to filibuster the organizing resolution, which is this you know sort of kerfuffle at the opening of the Senate, but it was a basic piece of Senate business that McConnell threatened to filibuster. All of this has, and then and then having every single Republican member of Congress vote against the American Rescue Plan. Um, all of that, I think, is pushing Democrats to say, well, we don't really have much of a choice here. Um, and it's sort of a, you know, more in sorrow than an anger uh, type of approach. But I think that's how senators are most likely to come around to this question of reform. Um, you know, what's, what's becoming crystal clear, even to folks like Manchin, is that this isn't about passing Medicare for all. This is about passing the centrist elements of the Biden agenda. And by standing firm in favor of the filibuster... He's not blocking far left policies. He's blocking the basic success or failure of the Biden administration and of all his Democratic colleagues and those who are up for re-election in 2022. Um so I think as that as that sort of dawns on senators that there's they really don't have any other options here. Um and this isn't about, you know, going going big for the left. This is about passing Biden's agenda, that those sort of and then combined with Republicans Increased intransigence, those are the sort of tectonic forces that sort of combine to push senators towards reform on an issue of this magnitude, but I, I feel very positive as a, as a pro reform person about where we are right now.
0: You do feel positive now I mean, there was this, this talk about the the talking filibuster which would require Senators to actually stand on the floor and and, and talk and read you know green hams and cheese, green ham and cheese whatever. Um, and Eggs, cheese, and from Wisconsin. Um, yeah, it didn't strike me that the talking filibuster solved any problem at all, though.
1: Yeah, and that and that's a big debate. Um, and I think probably what's going to happen is we're going to have to see <laughs> um, how it is in practice. I, I, there, there's, look, the talking filibuster is what blocked civil rights bills in the Senate for mm-hmm. a century, and it was very effective at doing so. And it's 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 not actually the sort of solo person in in the way we think of it with Mister Smith. Um, you know, because one person, you can just wait them out. Um, Strom Thurmond, the longest filibuster was 24 hours. You know, that's a day of delay, no big deal. You wait it out. Um, ironically, Thurmond, that was a funny episode. It's famous, but Thurmond waited until all of his fellow Southerners had decided to let the 1957 bill go and then put on this big show to show them up to their people, their constituents back home. And all the other <laughs> Southerners were really pissed off at him for that. Um, but anyway, it's 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 not the solo person talking that really is effective in delaying for a long time. It's a coordinated filibuster where, the, in in the Jim Crow era, it would be the the Southern block of segregationist Democrats at the time, um, you know, twenty or so of them who could coordinate among each other to keep a filibuster going on indefinitely. And so that's the threat you would see today: is that you wouldn't just have Ted Cruz reading Green Eggs and Ham um, for a day; you would have all Republicans coordinating to keep a filibuster going indefinitely. What what I think is is an open question is you know I, I think you you, you could but don't you have to control the chair to do that? Well, you you don't need to control the floor, which okay. is just a question of gaining recognition, and mm-hmm. and you know this is in Senate history. There, you know, the early Senate was was very much geared towards preventing exactly this kind of thing. And the chair, um, the person who sits in the chair at the top of the dais and presides over the debate, used to just call, cut people off and say, "That's it, you're done." You know, <laughs> you've clearly stop trying to persuade and you're just trying to obstruct, um, you know, and they used to open the doors of the chamber to sort of signal to someone their time was up, they used to start talking over them. Um, but none of that exists anymore. Our ethic has shifted towards letting them go on. And so, yeah, you could you could see that happening. The, the big question is, you know, if you have to sustain that all the time against every single bill that comes to the floor, um, is that something that's, that's sustainable? And I don't know. I think we'll have to see. But if it, if it is sustainable, and if Republicans do succeed in using this new talking filibuster to block everything, then Democrats can always tighten the screws and implement uh, enforcement mechanisms. Um, and again, this would be a return to the way things used to be. Um, there used to be a rule on the books in the original Senate that allowed a majority to vote to cut off debate when it thought debate had become obstructive. Mm-hmm. And so you could eventually see the restoration. It's called the previous question rule. Um and it was sort of gotten rid of by mistake in 1806 because they didn't think they needed it because no one ever performed these kind of filibusters. Um, This was decades before Calhoun came to the Senate. Um, You could see a restoration of that kind of rule where eventually after a certain amount of time, maybe certain conditions are triggered where you say, okay, we're the Senate, we're not the House, we've let you have your say, um, but you've clearly veered from any attempt to persuade into obstruction and now it's time to bring this debate to a close and bring the bill up for a majority vote.
0: So, how do you see this this playing out? Because I, you know, when we're talking about the filibuster in the abstract, we can make these, you know, very, they may, you know, uh, uh, supporters of the filibuster can make very high minded uh, arguments about the the nature of the Senate. But if it comes down to a specific issue, for example, voting rights, then the politics changes, doesn't it? That 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 when it becomes the question of will you allow the the minority to block for example the restoration of voting rights will you allow this dis- disenfranchisement voter suppression campaign throughout the states to succeed that creates a much different political and emotional context for this debate
1: doesn't it it does and you know look there certainly would be some poetic justice to it um, if if voting rights and and the broader issue of civil rights was what, what brought the filibuster to an end. Um, Since, you know, we we talked about the antebellum origins, um, which, you know, you could argue a little bit murkier since slavery was such a, you know, broad issue, but, you know, the origins were very clear in, in the Jim Crow era where, you know, Every other issue was allowed to pass or fail based on whether it could get a majority. Every once in a while, you would see something run into a filibuster, but then it was quickly dropped, and the issue was passed in a short amount of time. You know, the only issue that was killed definitively, consistently by civil rights, uh, by by the filibuster, was civil rights uh, for nearly a century, from the end of Reconstruction in eighteen eighty seven until the breaking of the first filibuster in nineteen sixty four. So, you know, I think there is an emotional resonance to that. Um, and I think this is an issue that, that just gets at people's basic sense of fairness. Um, there's a reason that these uh, proposals poll as they do and, and strong majorities of support even uh, getting traction among Republicans um, because I think people basically think it, it should be people, everybody should have equal access to the ballot. Um, and certainly for Democrats on my side of the aisle, there's an incredibly strong pull on this. So I, I think that there's a lot of reasons we should get rid of it. Um, you know, you could ev- you could see the filibuster argument happening on an infrastructure bill that, you know, is broadly supported and re- if mm-hmm. Republicans don't join over. But I do think that at the end of the day, the voting rights bill is something that Republicans have made very clear that they will never let pass Um and it's something that Democrats really can't live without. So I do think that is that is probably the most likely thing to, to bring this um, reform question to a head and, and probably um, to see reform happen.
0: So one, one last question. Mitch McConnell um, is taking this very, very seriously and is warning that if Democrats go ahead with this, uh, they will see scorched earth, uh, the scorched earth Senate, that he's going to grind everything to
1: a halt. Mm-hmm. Is that a serious threat or is that a bluff? I mean, it's, I think it's a bit of a bluff. McConnell, I think most Democrats hear that from McConnell and say, so what else is new? I mean, this is a guy standing in a barren field that's already been scorched, holding a burnt match, threatening to, to scorch it further, I think. Um, you know, and, and if if he does follow through, I mean, look, on the ARP, they they sort of deployed some of these tactics, right? They had, they forced the reading of the bill, which took 10 hours. Yeah, um, pointless. And Democrats just waited it out. And, you know, the next day, Sherrod Brown said this was the best day of, he'd ever had in the Senate. So You know, you can just sort of wait these out. It takes a lot of effort to put in to to do the kind of tactics he's talking about. So I think Republicans might tire of it after a little while. And then if they don't, Democrats can always follow through with other reforms to to sort of stop that kind of obstruction. So I I don't I think that Democrats look at that and say, "Eh, it's not not a real threat that, that concerns them.
0: So, um, Adam Jettleson, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it very much. The book is Kill Switch, and it really makes a comprehensive case for uh, the reform of the, of the filibuster. And uh, you know, again, deals with with an issue that I think is going to come to a head within the next. Well, What do you think, Adam? I mean, is
1: this going, when are we going to get an answer? Um, two think, months, three months, yeah, sooner? Three months, yeah, definitely. I think it's this fight is going to join. I think there will be a resolution to it. Um, or at least the beginning of the resolution sometime this year, I think I'm hopeful it happens before the end of the summer, because I think um, there's no reason to wait. So again, the book is Kill Switch: The
0: Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy. Adam, thank you uh, for joining us on the Bulwark podcast today. Thanks so much, Charlie. It's great to be here. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.